In the Green Room with Bob O'Brien, brought to you by SOS Global Express. Today I'm in the Green Room with tour production manager and touring industry legend Steve Ardell. Steve's been in the music industry for well over 40 years, which is spanning almost five decades. And he's worked with artists such as The Horse Lips, U2, Bon Jovi, Robbie Williams, and so many more. He's won so many accolades and awards for his work with these artists. And Steve and another few like-minded people and what they've achieved are the initial reason I focused on a career in touring. I've always regarded Steve as an innovator and as a benchmark for my own role as a production manager. Steve, welcome to the green room. No, it's good to be here and I appreciate you asking me and stuff like that. Strange times we're doing this in those. It goes against everything like we in our DNA from what we do and, and why we want to tour. We suddenly locked up at home for, for long periods of time. For where we're at in music and touring, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a long time yet before, you know, large audiences are allowed to sort of be together. Well, it's not even that. You have to look at it from the audience point of view. Like, will they have the competence to, to want to be in a large group of people or, or in a group of people based on what they know at the moment and what they've had to, uh, to uh, the protocols they've had to live with for the last bit? Like, and until we have an antivirus, it may be the case that people don't want to be in groups any longer. That's something that has to be considered. Well over 40 years in touring. Did you start in the late 70s? I, uh, I did the leave insert in 1977 and I finished in the uh, first couple of weeks of June. And uh, I basically got involved with horses from that moment onwards because the, the, the night I finished my last exam, which I, I, if I remember rightly, was one of the art exams, which was what you had to carve up the potato and make a puppet out of or something like that. <laughs> So as soon as that was over, I, I, I was straight out of school, down to the main road in, in Mullingar, Longford Main Road, and got, started hitching. And I went to Balladrain to see horses and who were performing that night. And within a couple of days, like I was working with horses and, and never left from that point on. And that was, that was the start of it for me. I, I went to see them for years and years as a fan before that. And they were always some, a band that excited me because they, they were doing things that no other band in the country were doing at that time. They had roadies with long hair and mustaches and really cool guys like Pat McGuire and, and Martin Mulligan and Robbie McGrath and Finn Barr Quinn and Paul Werner and all those guys like that, that sort of I looked up to and stuff and were hugely uh, instrumental in me wanting to be part of the business and also very helpful to me as well and, and uh, put an arm around me and, and, and brought me along and taught me some good habits and stuff like that and taught me some bad habits as well. <laughs> which are which are kind of essential really uh you kind of you, you kind of got, got to know the bad habits to make sure that you can correct them or get them right <laughs> yeah well yeah, the, the things about it is it was an exciting business and like and, and, and you wanted to run away with the circus and that was primarily what i wanted to do because it was so different than anything else that anyone could do i didn't realize that like you could get a job working with a band and uh, that, that really appealed to me in, in, in all forms of what that job was and so I did that, and uh, I, I was very, very lucky. Like the horse lips thing lasted a good number of years, like three, four years before they finished up in Belfast. And in that period of time, I, I think I went to America three times. And like when I was eighteen, first time was eighteen years of age, which was a huge experience for a young kid from the west of Ireland, like from a very, very small community in the west of Ireland, and that was a massive experience driving throughout the States for the, the best part of two or three months at a time, supporting people like Nazareth, supporting people like Rush, Head East, uh, UK with John Wetton and, and the Tubes and people like that, and Roxy Music. 
it was an eye opener, believe me. And it, it, things that, and it excited me, and that's why I wanted to go to continue in the business. What led you to um, moving into the production manager role? Did you sort of inherit it, or did you? I must admit, like when I was working with horses for the first uh, up to nineteen eighty, that when until they finished up and stuff. I, I was making very, very good money at the time. And then uh, Barry Devlin, the bass player with Horses, he had produced the first U2 single. And uh, one of his best mates, and still to this day, one of his best mates is Paul McGuinness, the manager of U2. So when they'd finished up, Barry recommended me to Paul. And they had come back from doing their first ever tour in America, which was the boy tour. And then they finished up in London and then they were back on a break. And uh, I, they were getting ready to start putting together the October album. And uh, I, I got a call and stuff to see would I be interested. I met with Tim Nicholson, who was the uh, their tour manager at the time, down in Waterloo Road. I, I, I met with him, and within a couple of days, I, I was working with uh, with you too, and took a big, big cut in wages. I had to add <laughs> at the time, and, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I started as a backline tech. I worked my way along, and as the band got bigger and bigger, there was a, a requirement for a stage manager, so I moved up into that role. And it was basically when time came around, it was either sack me or make me stage manager because I don't want to do backline. I, I, yeah. That's the point where I couldn't stand it. It, was, it wasn't something I felt was a lot of enjoyment out of. But in 1984, then the, the, the band were just getting to the point where they were about to get into the unforgettable fire, and they, they were getting to a point where they were about to start arena touring. And Paul McGuinness was very friendly with a gentleman called Herbie Herbert, who was the manager of Journey. And Journey at the time were just like Frontiers and Beyond Tour in America, which was the biggest grossing tour in America at that particular time. They had a company called Nocturne who had a lighting company. They had a, a as you well know, they had a video company, the whole lot. So someone had a, Paul had a bright idea along with Herbie Herbert and Pat Morrow to uh, send me to the States for three or four months to, uh, to work with them to, to see how the arenas came together and to do that. So I went to San Francisco for three months. And while I was in San Francisco, the, the journey people along with working with them, made arrangements that I went to see every, I could see every show in, in San Francisco in the arenas and clubs and theaters and stuff. So I watched every show from load in to load out and saw every band and how they were doing it. And so that was a huge background. And then I came back with the, the, the basis of all the knowledge I'd acquired then and sort of made suggestions of how you two should approach the next uh, level of touring, which was the arena tours. You, you couldn't ask for a better grounding. Well, you know, I, uh, I said in my intro there about, you know, Steve, you've been an innovator. I mean, even, even that move in itself, that was fantastic. No, no but I, I, I always, I, I have a huge interest in the business and I have a huge interest in the mechanics of it and how it all works. And I, I love the people involved in it and stuff. But I, and I've never really found the whole thing a chore whatsoever. I, I just, I have a great passion for it, like in all aspects. I love to see it work and I love to see people being treated well. I love to see things being done properly. And I, and I, I always think like, I, I think that the, the, the back end of our business, which is what we do and who the people we were, I think that's more important than the acting after time. Yeah. You know as well the relationships you've developed from that as well. You probably don't have a... a huge and are strong relationships with the artists but you certainly have strong relationships with the people you've, you've worked with over the years absolutely and i think it's the type of game as well that you um you know you might not be in contact with people for a long time or you might move on in touring and you might not see each other for a while and you might not work with each other for five or six years but it, the, the 
that connection is still there and that connection is huge. And Absolutely. Like, I, I remember those times that we, we, we sat for hours and hours and drove miles and miles all around America on buses and things like that. And like, you get to know people in a very, very different way and, and you have to trust each other as well on all levels and stuff. And it's, it's all about the components in this and, and, and nobody, regardless, if you're at the top of the pile and stuff as your production manager, so you're only as good as the people that are working with you. What's your, uh, what's your favourite part of touring? Oh, I, I love the logistics of it. And uh, I suppose things like sort of do, doing a show in Sarajevo with you two in, in, in 1997 was like the challenge involved and that was fantastic. And I was sent to Sarajevo to come up with 10 reasons why we shouldn't go there because it was just after the war and, and yeah. things were very, very different there. And uh, or come up with a way like sort of let's take a couple of guitars and the, a, the snare drum and go down there and play a few songs. But uh, we arrived into Sarajevo and... and People in Sarajevo who were best qualified, so they thought at the time to, to do the show down there, was the Olympic Committee from the Orville and Dean Winter Olympics and stuff. So uh, we stayed in the Holiday Inn, and the next day we had a meeting and we, we drove to the meeting. And uh, I, I listened to these people and I, I listened to all the stories of what they've experienced during the war. And I, I left Sarajevo after that first visit down there. And, and my, my comment to the band was, if we play anywhere, we play Sarajevo. And we take everything down there because you can't treat these people like a, a yeah. second yeah. class. Yeah. has to be the whole show. We have to go down there and pretend it's all normal or, or make, make it normal. In, in the end, it turned out to be a, a stunning concert and one that's still talked about. And, and I've still got friends there who communicate regularly to me and still talk about it to this day. The most amazing thing was that we our, our trucks ran incredibly late getting into Sarajevo. And uh, one thing we said, and I said as well, was that the people who worked on the show in Sarajevo, they had to be paid the same amount of money as we would pay a crew person in any other part of the world at that particular time. And if you put that in context, the, the average wage in, in, in Bosnia at that time was after the war was about $130 a month. So we were looking at paying these guys $150. $200 for the day's work and it was the only time in my entire career that the that the local crew stayed on didn't get bored didn't go home and stuff but when the trucks arrived in Sarajevo it was the most amazing thing you ever heard everybody went out in the streets with dustbin lids and saucepans and pots and pans and started cheering and banging oh wow wow yeah it, it was phenomenal it really really was it's an amazing occasion the, uh, the distribution for the tickets was all done by people in cars and through post offices. On the night of the show in, in Sarajevo, the trains ran for the first time ever since the war, since the beginning of the war. So there was, there was things like that happening the whole way through, and, and everybody got hugely involved and got behind it. And the, the, they made a concession that 5,000 soldiers could go to the, the, the concert but the condition that we asked them to do, that, that no one was armed, none of the soldiers were armed, which was something unheard of at the time because there were peacekeeping force down there. Yeah. Likewise, we also sort of spoke with all the people down there saying that we would like fans of the man from Serbia to attend. So fa fans from Serbia and Croatia also attended and they were escorted in and they were treated well and they saw the concert and went home again. And... Uh, it, it was one of those things like you, you don't you don't come across stuff like that too often in this business, and that's that's one of the great things I, I had the opportunity to work on. Wow, that is absolutely amazing. Yeah. 
Would you talk to me about changes in trends and tour that you've seen over, I mean, from, from the early days to now? I mean, you started, there was no email. There was, was there even fax machines? No mobile phones. No mobile phones, yet. Yeah. No mobile phones in those days. And then it was a lot simpler and sometimes I think it was an awful lot easier mm. and a lot more enjoyable because of that. The, the, the one thing that's very, very evident now is the, the, the fact that the industry doesn't sleep. It was a lot simpler in the old days. It really was. But, and, and, and things were achieved in a, in a very, very different way. Like now everyone's got AutoCAD and starts sending them drawings around. Once upon a time, like when people were designing a, a stadium tour, it was actually someone got a ruler out and a pencil and, and drew it. That was put in an envelope and given to a courier and it came from wherever part of the world to whoever it was going to and they got it five or six days later, had a look at it, got on the phone, had a discussion, made their changes and it went back in a courier and, and it, it, that's how it was. So you, was that sometimes you, you ended up having to get it right a lot, lot quicker than what you do nowadays. I had the good fortune to work with Chris Vaughan uh, when he was production manager for Take That, and he did the circus tour. And it was probably one of the greatest shows I've ever worked on, that the spectacle and everything that Kim Gavin and everybody was involved in put something special together. We did uh, full-scale production rehearsals in the Stadium of Light in Sunderland. And at one point in the show, was a, a, a tightrope rigged that went from the stage all the way to the front of house position. And it was a, a, a portable thing that popped up at a moment's notice. But it meant that this uh, tightrope walker had to walk over the audience without any safety factor underneath it. So Chris, being a smart guy, decided, like with the promoters, uh, SGM, as you very well know, decided to get all the health and safety people from all the dates that we, all the cities we were playing in the UK to come up for the dress rehearsal and for the run-through and stuff like that to see the various gags that were happening because some of them were quite special. So lo and behold, we were all getting ready for it on top of the show and rigged all this here and we were great, like this is the end of this, we'll never have to look at this again and stuff like that. And so the guy got up, this Russian guy with his, with his balancing pole and walked the tightrope, did his sort of dummy fall in the middle of it and stuff and landed on one knee just over where Gary Barlow was playing the piano and then went across the audience. And I, this day I'll never forget when the health and safety guy from one of the cities said, Jesus, that's brilliant. <laughs> Going against every rule in the book, like. <laughs> if you were to buy a ticket in the morning for any concert in the world, past and present, what would it be? Two, two people. One would be Mott the Hoople, which I've, I've gone to every occasion I have, because when Mott the Hoople originally were booked to play in Dublin, unfortunately, the, 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 the bombs went off in Dublin. And then not long after that, they broke up. And it was all of 30-odd years later before they reformed and they played the Hammersmith Odeon. Fantastic. So I got tickets for that, and I took my son Sam with me. And he, he's become a huge Mott the Hooper fan. What age was he then? Oh, God, he'd be he's just in his 20s or so at that stage. Wow, that's amazing. And then they played two years ago in London in the Shepherd's Bush Empire. So I took not only my son, but I took my daughter as well. So we went to see Mott the Hooper for night. And the, the most astonishing thing about that was in Shepherd's Bush Empire, Ian Hunter bounded on stage, 78 years of age, and had the audience in the palm of his hand. 
But when you went to see him in the Hammersmith Odeon, the, 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 the amazing thing was like the people in the front row were like Mick Jones from the Clash and stuff. Like that. <laughs> and yeah. that, that's what the front row was. It was all artists of, of that ilk and caliber. And the other person I'd buy a ticket for would have, if I had the opportunity, would be uh, Willie Deville, one of my all-time heroes. When I was with Joe Joe Hurley, as you know very well, and myself, we were, we when we did Verkter Festival with you too. Mink Deville were on the bill, and we we'd met them backstage at the time. And I, I thought these guys were were deadly cool in their New York suits, the suits and stuff. And they went on stage, and it was one of the most phenomenal shows I'd ever seen. And ever since then, like I, every album that they, Mink Deville produced, and then Willie Deville as a solo artist and stuff like that. I, I won the and he all time hero. And uh, after that would come the Rolling Stones, of course. Let me ask you, unsung heroes on tour. Uh, well, certainly caterers, without a doubt, because uh, of, of, of how important they are to, to what goes on every day. And, and they work under incredibly difficult conditions and uh, like what, rigors. Like, it's a phenomenal art form. It really is. It's, 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 it's very impressive. I, I'm still in awe of what they do on a daily basis. I've been so, so lucky with the rigors I've worked with in this business, like the people like Steve Whitmer's, the Charlie Boxall's. Robin Elias is the people who were the innovators doing this, and the Mike Grastics, people who were doing it when it didn't exist, yeah. and, and doing stuff like with, with the Grateful Dead hanging a hundred S fours in NASA Coliseum when, when people were carried, but most other people were hanging sixteen. Yeah, and, yeah, and they're smart people, and, and I, I, I certainly my hats off. And then there's the other people that you put your 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 lives your your lives in your hands every day is the bus drivers, and likewise the truck drivers. It's all very, very hard work, and it, it's usually a yeah, level of concentration required in, in delivering those things A to B for his agents. And look, I've respect for everybody. My hat's off yeah, to everybody yeah, that works yeah. in this industry. It's a, it's a tough job, and it, but it's a great job to be involved in. It really is. It's like nothing else you'll experience. Steve Iredale, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to sit with me and chat. It's been lovely catching up with you. In the Green Room, sponsored by SOS Global Express. Proudly supporting the frontline efforts throughout the COVID-19 pandemic.